We're entering our 10th year here at the Los Angeles Review of Books. To mark the occasion, we'll spend the next 10 months celebrating the Best of Large archive and looking ahead to the exciting decade to come. We're kicking it all off Sunday, March 14th, with the launch of a brand new website. Join us at lareviewofbooks.org. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, another editor-at-large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have a double header, two debut novelists. We do. First up, we're going to talk to Christine Smallwood, who has a new novel out. It's called The Life of the Mind. And then the second conversation is going to be with Sarah Davis, an old friend of mine, Full disclosure on that front. And she has a new novel out called The Scapegoat. Two really, really different books, but we pair them together because they have a relationship with academia, both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they're they're very different, but they're also books that both spend a lot of time inside the narrators and the and the characters' heads. They're both pretty interior. And they're also books where maybe on the surface there's not a ton of action. Yes. Totally. That feels completely right to me. And they're very different characters. It's the interiority of two extremely different people. Uh, In Christine Smallwood's book, it's a young woman, an academic who has just miscarried and and she's sort of navigating uh, academic failure. I don't know to put it bluntly. And then in Sarah's book, it's also a person who is navigating academic failure in a way, not to spoil anything, but it's a middle-aged man um, who is investigating his father's death. And things sort of unravel from there. He, in his interior life, he's not actually totally sure what's real and what isn't, I would say. So they, yeah, they kind of have that in common. But it's exciting to pair the two of them together because they're so different. But hopefully listeners will check both of these debuts out. Yeah. And first they can listen to our interviews. Okay, let's get to it. Okay. We're thrilled to be speaking with the writer Christine Smallwood today. Smallwood is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and a contributing editor at Harper's. Her work has also appeared in many other places, including The New Yorker, Book Forum, and M Plus One, and she completed her PhD in English from Columbia University. She joins us to talk about her excellent debut novel, The Life of the Mind. The Life of the Mind follows an English professor named Dorothy who finds herself trapped in adjunct hell, unable to move forward in her career and in her life at the moment of a miscarriage for an unplanned pregnancy that she keeps from almost everyone, including her multiple therapists. The book darkly and humorously lasers in on the many precarities of our present moment, from the labor crisis in academia to the slow-churning disaster of climate change, the frailties of our own bodies, and our possibly deluded attachments to what might constitute a good life. To one comparisons to Paul Fox's Desperate Characters, which is high praise in my book and I think really apt in this case, as well as the work of Otessa Mushveg and Sally Rooney. Thanks so much for being here, Christine. Thank you. That was such a wonderful summary of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, Christine, maybe just so we get started with kind of letting our readers know what the book is about, would you tell us 
where the idea for the book, I mean, I have some some guesses about where some of the ideas came from for the book, but would you tell us where the idea for the book came from? Yeah, so I had a blighted ovum miscarriage, much like the one in the book. And when I was pregnant with my first son, I have two sons now, but when I was pregnant with my first son, I was trying to write a collection of short stories at that time. And one day I just sat down and just like all at once, sort of without really thinking about it, the short story, it's called The Keeper, and it was published in M plus one, just kind of came out all at once, which was really different for me because usually I labor a lot over my writing and like I rewrite a lot and I write like a lot of really bad first paragraphs and like it just never really comes together quickly. But in this case, the whole story just kind of came out, you know, fully formed, but also unformed because that story just kind of breaks off. And then I figured that was kind of it. And eventually the story was published. And when the story came out, a friend of mine who I really respect was telling me, giving me his feedback. And he said that he thought that it felt unfinished. And I was like, unfinished. And then I was complaining to another friend of mine about that. And that friend was like, oh, sure. A miscarriage story is unfinished. Like, ha ha ha. And I was like, yeah, it's not unfinished. But then I think that was just in the back of my mind for a really long time. And I was still trying to kind of write short stories that just kind of were not going well. And then I found myself wondering if I should go back to that story, which I had felt like liked and worked and to see just if there was more to be done with that character. So eventually I just went back and kind of tried to just pick up and keep going with it. Yeah. It's funny as a mother, the character in this book, Dorothy, she's pretty ambivalent about having children. And so the miscarriage doesn't it doesn't have the same resonance that it would obviously if a woman was trying to have a child. And it, it also is a long process and even what is coming out, you know, that's another thing I want to talk about, but it's like, you know, it's not quite a life that was formed, but it's not quite over. And so that indeterminacy is something that you really play into. So maybe you could just talk about what you think that this, the period of the miscarriage also kind of sets the time clock of the novel. So you know, if you thought so much about just the phenomena of miscarriage, it seems like you did, but maybe you could just talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I got really interested in trying to kind of key the structure of the novel to the structure of this ongoing post-miscarriage bleeding. I mean, because I don't even really know, I still don't even really know what to call it, but I knew that a miscarriage would typically represent like a kind of ending, And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of put the miscarriage, not even at the beginning of the book, but kind of before the book begins, right? And so now she's, you open the book and she's kind of dealing with aftermath, right? And then I thought, okay, how am I going to organize the events of the book? Because like, what are they leading up to? They're not really leading up to anything, right? There isn't really like a satisfying way to have closure around that experience, which is so open-ended. And in her case, kind of interminable, right? because of not going for the in-office sort of DNC procedure, right? So she's just kind of like letting it dribble out. And so every chapter, the dates that I chose are coordinated with dates related to her bleeding. So in every chapter, there's like the weird lump day, or there's the day where her period comes back, or what is it, and that kind of stuff. It seems like such an obvious point, but you know, this is a really cerebral character and very, very smart. And she seems to want to exit her body at times, but as the narrator of the book, or 
it's a close third. So we almost feel like she's the one who's narrating, but she's not. And the attention that you pay to what happens with her body through the miscarriage is really granular. Like just, we know a lot of what's coming out of her body and what she's feeling. And in other ways, you know, like, of course the novel opens with her on the toilet taking a shit. So I was curious. I mean, it seems like there's obviously something you're saying with that. Why it was important to you to have the body be so foregrounded? The truth is, I don't, I guess I still don't really know, but I definitely, I felt that there was all of this shame there and I just kind of wanted to run right at it. And, you know, like definitely during the course of writing it would often be like, oh my God, are people going to read this? Are my parents going to read this? Is my mom going to read this? And just had to immediately like repress all of that. And just because I just felt like there was something that needed to just be like brought to the surface. I felt that the book had to risk being so humiliating in order to potentially be worth sharing in a way. And just also, you know, because the character is so withholding of this information in the world of the novel, right? She's not sharing what's going on with the people around her. To then have that shared with the reader I don't know. I actually didn't have that thought. Someone said that to me about the book, that they thought that was interesting. That then like the reader and Dorothy were in this kind of intimate relationship that was not shared more widely. Oh, I think that really makes sense. I also think that the book does something really tricky, which is, I mean, it's called Life of the Mind, but so much of it is dedicated to like the grotesquery of the body. And that is a way of sort of accessing a kind of vulnerability that otherwise she's really averse to. Dorothy really doesn't like being vulnerable, even though she's vulnerable constantly. And that's like almost like her whole being is like being shamed and vulnerable, but but she's super averse to kind of emotionally being vulnerable with other people. And so like having such intimate, almost excessive access to her body really does that, I think. And it really balances out the sort of emphasis that she has on the work of the mind, which is constantly being subverted by the work of the body. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that something that I was really interested in about the kind of grotesquery it is, is just how ordinary it is and how, like, this is not a reproductive trauma. You know, this is not a stillbirth. This is not something that is, you know, because we've all read personal essays or, or novels or works of nonfiction where there are, like, really horrific, intense things that people go through. And this is not that kind of experience. This is like a very ordinary, like daily, like she keeps saying it's not traumatic, but yet it's something. And so the question for me was just like, what is this thing? Because how common is this kind of miscarriage? It's so common. Yeah. Well, from there, I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about the academic setting that the book takes place in. So Dorothy is, she's an academic, she's an adjunct. The readers don't know that is probably <laughs> the worst possible case scenario. And she sort of says at a certain point, like there's three different kinds of people who come out of academia. There's the winners, there's the losers, and there's the people who leave. And she counts herself as one of the losers. Can you talk about your experience in academia and the true hell that it actually is? <laughs> as, I, as I know personally and well. <laughs> What's your experience in academia? I was getting a PhD at UCLA in contemporary American fiction and left right before actually writing the dissertation after six years. So it was enough time. Was you enough had a big teaching load probably, right? I created my own class 
And so at that point, it was actually kind of fun, the teaching. I just had to teach that one class and I had 20 students and it was all right. But the rest of it was total bullshit. (laughs) So yeah, I went to grad school. I got a PhD in English at Columbia. I graduated in 2014. I had a kind of like emotionally grueling time at Columbia. I think I went into grad school with the mistaken belief that just going to grad school would make me an expert. Like I was working at The Nation in the literary section as an associate editor, and we published so many academics and I just respected them so much. And they were able to kind of synthesize and make declarations and judgments. And I was like, this is the kind of critic I want to be. And I thought that somehow just going to grad school could sort of turn me into that kind of expert. And I had some really heartbreaking moments in grad school where I realized that like, that's just not what happens. Like nobody, it was kind of like all of my sort of youthful or really infantile illusions about like authority and expertise kind of had to be like taken away. So that was like my own like affective experience. And I adjuncted for one year. So I don't want to pass myself off as someone who like did a lot of time in the adjunct trenches because I really did it. And I had one year and I decided that I wouldn't do it because it wasn't worth it financially, that I should instead focus on being a magazine writer, which is also not, I mean, it was like leaving one precarity for another precarity. It wasn't like a good financial decision either way. But I think I just found the experience of even that one year of adjuncting so painful. You know, the feeling of like, the weird office that you have for two hours a week has like somebody's like half finished painting in it and a bunch of like crappy paperbacks and just like the weird computer, just like that feeling of being a kind of ghost in the department. I really didn't like. I mean, and so I'm assuming that, that part of the novel is kind of like drawing that reality out for longer than you could actually do it yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I would be yeah. really curious to hear from people who have adjuncted for, you know, like three years if they thought the book actually it does represent that state or not, you know, because my own personal experience is really grad school, which is, I think, a very closely related sort of academic hell, but is definitely not the same thing. Yeah, it's, you know, in the novel, it's kind of unclear if Dorothy takes a lot of that, the structural issues of academia, and now, you know, there are no jobs. In the book, there are no jobs, and then in real life, I've heard plenty of people say there are no jobs. It seems like she kind of teeters between acknowledging that and also taking that reality as a personal failure. Because I was actually surprised at one point she goes to deliver a paper in Las Vegas. And you don't show us the moment of her delivering the paper, which I would have been curious to see how it went. But supposedly she says, oh, it went well. But then she doesn't even believe in the ideas that she's delivering. She doesn't think her ideas make sense. And she also says she hates teaching. So the question of why she really wants to be in academia is definitely on the table. But then also, if she could just acknowledge that it was not her fault, she would become an activist, right? But because she can't, she's kind of stuck. And again, it's this indeterminate state. Did you personally take your experience in academia as a personal failure? Or did you just think this is a crazy system that's not right for me? Such a good question. I mean, I think I chose to leave, like I never went on the job market, you know, so I don't consider myself to be like exactly like a failed academic because I didn't try. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like I adjuncted in New York right after Columbia. I taught just like very briefly. So I don't totally like identify with all aspects of Dorothy. 
But I do, I definitely think you're reading her right, that she's not an activist. She's not, there is a systemic failure that she's aware of, but she experiences it as a personal failure and a personal crisis, which she's definitely not a hero in that way. (laughs) In which ways is she a hero to you? Oh, (laughs) you know, I think of her as someone who's having a really hard time. I mean, yeah, certainly one of the funniest parts to me of the book is just also another indeterminate aspect of all of our daily lives is this, you know, fact that we think that the world will soon end and the predictions for what's going to happen with our climate are so dire. And just to live with that in the background is really confusing and it's difficult. And so like she has these fantasies where she's talking to these kids on a raft in the future and they're basically like, you did nothing. You know, she's arguing her point, but it's such a funny fantasy It seems like she's going through a hard time. She has like very inventive ways to cope with it. She's really cruel to herself in so many ways, but it's also not what she's dealing with is just what so many of us seem to be dealing with right now too. Yeah. And I mean, I do think that there is a way that like the academic lottery and climate are also have a, maybe like a structure of that could be similar, which is just so much of it has to do with I hesitate to use the word luck when talking about climate because of factors of structural racism and and geography that lead to certain groups existing more on the margins or the front lines of climate disaster. But I do think there is also an element to like, I don't know, I live in central Brooklyn. I don't live in a flood zone. So during Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy, like we didn't flood. You know, if we had lived in a different part of Brooklyn, like we could have lost everything. You know, if we lived in Staten Island, we could have lost everything. And I think there's something about the world we live in now where we're watching some people are experienced. Some people are in climate disaster right now. You know, it's happening for them right now. And so to be someone to whom it is not happening right now, but to feel that it could happen at any time in the future is like a very crazy making place to be. And I think that's the place that she is. She's a kind of like watching this unfolding catastrophe with really no agency or ability to do anything about it. Yeah. And she's also teaching a class on writing the apocalypse. So she's also kind of thinking about the different sorts of endings that people have either imagined themselves to be in or have narrated for themselves or that have actually occurred in some capacity. So she's also kind of looking at what an ending might look like and not really understanding it either for herself or globally, it seems like. It seems like she's kind of, it's unclear on both fronts. Yeah. I mean, I think the question is just like, how do we make meaning now? I don't know if this is academic-y or not, but like there's this idea that the ending is what gives the narrative meaning, right? And so if you don't have a reading of the end, how do you understand anything that happened up to that point? And if we are in this end that won't end, how do we make sense of where we are? Like what kind of story or what kind of significance can our story have? And so I think that that is a question I think about a lot with respect to climate, but also just sort of, I hate to use the word storytelling, but there it is. Shouldn't have a dirty name, that storytelling word. That's actually, there's a scene I love where she's watching a puppet show that's kind of abstracted and it doesn't have, she keeps on waiting for like this climax that doesn't really come. So I feel like that's one clue to just another possible way of being. And even the kind of reoccurrence of the body, you know, which is more of like in the realm of the real as opposed to the symbolic seems like, right, that doesn't have a structure it happens and you have to react. And that kind of 
immediacy also seems, of course, at odds with someone who's so in their mind. That's kind of, I'm sure how the end will come is just, it'll just be real and it will be, and we won't even be able to really comprehend it. Yeah. I mean, I have just sort of two things I want to say about that. One is I did this panel. I'm involved with this parent climate group called Sunrise Kids. That's part of the Sunrise Movement. And we did an event with N plus one. And one of the panelists, we were talking about like, how do we parent? How do we like live knowing that what kind of future is maybe awaiting our young children? And a parent on the panel had this beautiful answer where she said that she just tries to be in the moment with them, just as tries to be like in the present with her children. And I was like, what a radical idea, right? Because we're so obsessed with like, what will the future bring for them? And like, they're here right now, you know, and their lives are worthwhile right now. And so just to kind of like hold that while still, of course, like working for their future, I was really inspired when she said that. And I guess then my other thing is like more of a question, which is like, People keep telling me that they think Dorothy is like really in her head, but is she more in her head than you're in your head? Because when I was writing her, I was just like, this is just, this is just what it's like. I didn't think I was doing anything kind of excessive. And I'm really intrigued that maybe I am. I'm sure it's also the narration, you know, that we stick so closely with her and that we don't see her in relationship because it's a close third, it's also that we are stuck as the readers with what's yeah. in her head as opposed to what's in someone else's head or, you know, a more omniscient narrator who's seeing everyone from up high. So maybe that's why it feels yeah. like, oh, she's more in her head than... Yeah. It seems to feel burdensome in some way to be there with her. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean, like, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's it's like, a lot for all of us, right? Right. The moment... But I think it was when she, she usually rethinks instinctive physical urges that she has. So she reaches out to touch a person's arm and then she's like, well, am I touching it too long? Am I, should I touch it here? Should Right. So that there are ways in which, I mean, that is certainly, I think, a thing that many people go through where you're like, is this an appropriate way to touch this person? And it, is this like a comforting thing that I'm doing or is it just like a random movement? <laughs> So I feel like that totally happens, but it's, it is more pronounced, I think, in her than it might be, where she doesn't often allow herself to go with whatever instinctive urge she might have. And part of it is also, like I think, wrapped up in her complicated relationship with pleasure, where she's, she seems to not really be able to experience it um, <laughs> in like the most basic of ways. And she sort of resents when it's experienced by others. She kind of resents that experience on their behalf, even if it's not totally real, even if it's kind of imaginary on her part, like she's kind of vicariously, she's kind of like assuming that they're experiencing, they might not be, but she even resents the hint of pleasure in somebody else. So I think there's something about that where, and she is often drunk too. Um, So I feel like there's like ways of lowering all these inhibitions and it doesn't work. Yeah, you know, I just need to say it is so intensely pleasurable for me to hear two smart people like talk so closely about this character that I actually haven't really heard that many. Like this is just to hear you talk about her in these ways that you have really gotten to know her is it's just really delightful for me. <laughs> I think she's also very familiar, at least as a person and <laughs> a personality. She feels really close. I definitely related a lot to Yeah, same. I, um, I mean, so maybe one of the things we can talk about is her resistance to pleasure because, you know, so we see her 
after the miscarriage. She doesn't seem to be deriving pleasure from her work. Her relationship is comfortable and courteous, which is a very nice way to think about it, but it's not necessarily... And then there's like a point at which like her friend Gabby asks her, like, do you have sex? And she's like, yes, I have sex. But then she's like, what are we talking about? Like, I, even though there's so much going on physically, there's not really very much going on with her sexually. You know, and there's a karaoke scene where she used to gain pleasure from this, where she don't know. So what is it? Why this relentless kind of aversion to experiencing pleasure? So I have some questions about Dorothy also. You know, one of my questions would be, what was she like before this miscarriage, right? Because like, I really wanted to just give this like very, I think granular was a word one of you used, like this granular look into her life during on these days, right? But we don't actually know that much about what she's like before. I think we have to assume that she's had satisfying sex in her life at some point, but that that's not happening right now. You know, we have to assume that she's experienced intimacy with Gabby. She says Gabby is her best friend, right? I mean, I believe her when she says that. I think Gabby is her best friend. And I think that they have real intimacy that right now Dorothy has withdrawn from. And I think that what I like about the scene at the end with her and Gabby, the sort of like last scene with her and Gabby is that in that scene, Dorothy, this person who like really needs someone to care for her, is caring for her friend. And she might be caring for her friend in a way that doesn't feel like super lovey-dovey or like super obvious, but I think she's with her friend when her friend needs her. And I think that that's a good friendship because I've heard people say to me, oh, like, she doesn't really seem like they're good friends. And it's like, no, I think those two are really close. It's just that one of them is having a pretty hard time and has withdrawn from a lot of social relations. I also think that there's something interesting to me about going very deeply into a female character and her body and having it not be about sex. I think we have a lot of stories about, we actually have a lot of stories about women and sex. And I don't think we have as many stories about women's bodies that are not being used for pleasure or not being used in a way that you can find desirable. Like I didn't want to write a female character that someone would find desirable. You know, like she's not. And there's like a lot about her vagina and like none of it is going to make somebody feel like erotic about her. And I think, but that's, that's also part of life, right? Like, I don't think life is like 24 hours a day erotic. And so I wanted to put some attention on stuff that was intimate and bodily that wasn't about sex. And neither really about motherhood, because that's another vehicle, especially recently into women's bodies, you know, that's become the untold story, but now it's been told quite a bit. So it's like having a woman who's ambivalent about becoming a mother, but then also dealing with her body on a reproductive level I think is interesting. I mean, for me, one of the moments in the book that I find to be, helps me understand Dorothy is when Gabby says to her, oh, you should really have a baby because then someone will need you. And I think that Dorothy is not a person right now that anyone needs. And I think for me, that was the experience of being an adjunct. And it's also often for me, the experience of being a freelance writer, which is like, Nobody really needs me to do this. It would be fine if I didn't. The world would go on and everyone would be fine. And like, I think that can be a really hard place to be, to feel extraneous and like you're not useful, like you're not essential in some way. There's also a lot of privilege to not being a quote, like essential worker, right? But I think like for me, that's what Dorothy is really struggling with. She has this like freedom in her life, but then she's totally untethered. So now that you bring that up, I. One of the things that's curious about the book is that we really 
she seems untethered to her family too, in terms of her parents. And and one of the curious things about the book is there's an ongoing discussion of abortion as well as miscarriage. And that she, it seems, comes from a pro-life family and had previously believed abortion to be wrong, seems to hold on to those feelings while simultaneously having sort of kind of like actionable feminist thoughts about abortion. But it occurs to me that if being against abortion is also a way of asserting inherent usefulness in a person, right? That like, even if a baby is not wanted or that not pursuing an abortion means all people are inherently worth the life that they might inhabit. So it kind of makes sense with her kind of feeling maybe at a loss or not feeling of value in some capacity because nobody needs her. Yeah, I think that's true. So she does come from a Christian pro-life family. We're told that she went to some pro-life marches when she was a child, that her mother, we're told, is against abortion, except in cases of like rape, incest, or danger to a mother's life. I became really interested in how the kind of miscarriage that Dorothy has is just structurally exactly the same as like a first trimester medication abortion, right? I'm not talking about stuff that happens later on, just it's the same drugs, right? It's the same thing. And yet in one case, it is this sort of like choice that you're making. And in another case, it's this much more confusing experience, at least for Dorothy. And I do think Dorothy is kind of like trying to understand some of our cultural incoherence around pregnancy and abortion, right? Where you find like the same person who is extremely pro-choice to be quite sentimentally attached in some cases to an early pregnancy, and um, just to be perfectly clear, I'm very pro-choice. <laughs> so, but um, I wanted to use Dorothy as a way to kind of think through some of those, what I do see as an incoherence and in how we talk about it. I'm curious, just because we have to end, are you writing another novel as we speak? One day, I hope. But right now, I had my second child in May, in the beginning of the pandemic. And our older son, who is four, was not really in school until January. So I mostly have doing a lot of pandemic childcare. (laughs) Worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, not like you had a choice. (laughs) You know, the baby's still little. The baby's barely 10 months old. So, but yeah, no, I wish that I could tell you that I was like deeply into my next project. But this is also sort of my like academic imposter syndrome, you know, where you're supposed to be on like on your third project at your first job talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, luckily you've left academia, so... Yeah, give it's, yourself a, give there's a still always like the fear of being found out, right? It's like, you're going to get called on and you're not going to know the right answer. Yeah. Thanks so much, Christine. This was a delight. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Christine Smallwood, author of The Life of the Mind. We now turn to our conversation with Sarah Davis, author of Escape Code. We have Sarah Davis with us today. Sarah Davis grew up in Palo Alto, California, where she was raised by two Stanford immunologists. She received her bachelor's degree from Columbia University, which is incidentally where we met. So full disclosure, we've been close friends ever since freshman year. So I've known Sarah for a long, long time. Sarah went on to get her MFA at Columbia University. She's a contributing editor for LARB and has written a number of pieces for us. 
My favorite is a deep dive history into Laguna Beach, the reality TV show, which you can find on our website. Sarah's debut novel just came out from FSG. It's called The Scapegoat. The Scapegoat follows a man named N who works at a university in the Bay Area. N is investigating the circumstances around his estranged father's death. The investigation gets stranger and stranger, bringing him to a hotel, which also happens to be the site of a genocide, and bringing up episodes from his past, which it seems he would rather forget. As he gets closer to the mystery around his father's death, the line between reality, dream, conspiracy, and hallucination becomes porous, and N is forced to confront his own demons. We're not going to give away what happens, but Sarah, congratulations, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So Sarah, I thought we could start by you just describing the character of N a little bit. Um, I found him to be kind of in this classic mold of the affectless you know, kind of um, anti-heroine of, you know, Patricia Highsmith, another, that's actually the only reference that I know firsthand of books that I've read, but I'm sure that this is like a kind of a trope of some kind. And he has these ominous qualities, but then also um, I, I grew to find him sympathetic. So maybe just talk about what he is like and how you conceived of him. Sure. So, yeah, I think he definitely, like, I guess I think of him as kind of maybe a distant relation of like Humbert Humbert, who's also obviously like a unlikable narrator, but that, I mean, at least I personally grew kind of fond of. And I think, yeah, it was important for me for N to have some like cozier moments, like when he's <laughs> reading the mystery book or like eating stale cookies, like similar parallel to my own life of eating my stale cinnamon roll, but like just for the reader to have some moments with him where they feel like he's like relatable and. Oh, sorry to cut you off, but maybe explain a little bit why he's not so relatable. Well, I don't really know how to do that without doing like a big spoiler, I guess, but he does have some strong antisocial tendencies. Also, he's like, seems to not really like women very much. That's probably not very likable. And he just seems like he would be a difficult person to be around. And maybe also is like snobby in a way that, like a snobbiness that I recognize in myself, that I find like unpleasant in myself, but like that I hope is relatable to people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think there's also some, he has like a lot of difficulties interacting with people in a normal way, I would say. Like that seems, and then, I mean, part of that, part of his difficulty is that it seems like he doesn't have a very firm grip on reality or a sense of self, which Humbert Humbert, I feel like that kind of seems like a good parallel. Yeah, um, I definitely feel like Humbert Humbert probably feels like a little more con confident, like has more to be confident about, like in a real world way for me, like, I think for me, like a big part of N is like him feeling like his life didn't go the way that he wanted it to go. And that he, when he was younger, he had like all these opportunities and everything seemed kind of hopeful. And then like, suddenly he's like in his forties or fifties and it's like not really worked out, which is kind of like how I was feeling at the time that I was writing the book, even though I was like 30, but I just felt like I had all these classmates from graduate school who had like amazing books and were like doing really cool things. And I was just like not having that. And 
continuing to work on my book for like seven years with nothing to show for it. So I felt like I could really identify with his feelings of like having failed and like not really sure if like what he had to show for his life. It's so funny to hear you say that you related to him or that some of your own feelings were poured into him because of course reading it, I thought, God, this is, this can't have, although I don't know you, I thought this can't have anything to do with Sarah Davis. So this, this character is, <laughs> is completely fictional and so made up. So it's interesting to hear that um, he was a retainer for some of your own feelings of, of failure. I guess what I meant also about the fact that he's, that he doesn't have much affect is that he, he seems to, the novel, even as it has these kind of surrealist and, and mysterious elements, it also seems to be very much a story about someone who cannot feel, who's existing in a world of reason and, and trying to make connections that aren't there to replace the fact that something really awful has happened and he can't process it and that he isn't able to make connections with people. And so he exists in this realm of like a, a stereotype maybe of someone who is part of the sciences and, and who is not very much in touch with feeling, but exists in a more logical, overly logical you know, kind of programmatic way. So I wondered if that was something I, I noticed that you're in the in your bio, you are the um, daughter of scientists and that you grew up around scientists, I assume. And I, I wonder if that was something you were trying to explore with this book, albeit in a kind of extreme way. It's true that my parents are scientists. I guess I feel like they have like a normal amount of feelings and ability to feel. <laughs> I have not, I mean, I guess they are quite like logical, but I mean, I think Maybe not, then, not autobiographical, but just things you witnessed and experienced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's funny. Like my parents are scientists, but they're also like, they both read a lot of fiction and like are very, I don't know, maybe people wouldn't expect that from scientists. Maybe. I don't know. I think for N. I think more what I was going for there was like, I've always really wanted to write like a mystery book and I love like that genre, um, but it's never really like, whenever I try to write one, it never goes very well. Like it always just ends up being really boring, particularly when like police have to like start talking about technical things. Like it's always very difficult for me to write stuff like that. So I like the idea of N trying to do like an investigation, but being really bad at the investigation and trying to find connections. I mean, I feel like generally in the plot of a mystery, it's like, here's a person, they're in the situation and they're kind of like reading the situation for clues or like things that might be connected that might not obviously be connected or trying to see the connections between things that are maybe not obvious. But for N, he's like desperately trying to do that, but like so wrong and so bad at it that his, yeah, he's trying to be logical, but it's not super effective. Yeah. Also, one of the things that I, I think is interesting about N is he seems to be kind of obsessed with people who act. One of the things that really seems to kind of uh, preoccupy him is like his failure of action that he is one of those who has not acted and that the world is, he says at a certain point that the world is divided to two kinds of people. One kind of the people who can get things done and influence other events and then people who can't. And maybe it isn't totally fair to exactly decide which one and is, but 
it's funny to pick a hero who's not certain about his ability to act because you might have not no book on your hands if the person is not going to do anything. Was that something that you were also interested in or kind of like obsessed with this like ability to act or not act? I think it is definitely fair to put N in the category of people who are like aren't good at acting or aren't able to influence events. And I think that's also the category I would put myself in. Was I obsessed with it? No, I don't think so. But I mean, I think probably this is like a similar situation to what I was just talking about, about like uh, tropes of detective novels, like particularly in mysteries where like the detective is not, like that's not their job. Like they're not like a policeman, but rather just an like interested party. Obviously one characteristic that they have to have is like some kind of like proactiveness in terms of making their investigation happen. So I just liked the idea of having somebody who was trying to investigate something, but like just fundamentally doesn't really have like the right kind of personality, which is maybe also how I would be if I was like launching an investigation. Again, I just love this comparison (laughs) of you to this character that is so just is, um, seems kind of borderline something. I'm not sure. Totally. (laughs) <laughs> and and I think, it, you know, it's definitely the trope of the mystery novel and the mystery. And also, I guess there's there's some elements of horror to the book in that way that what is real and, and what is not is never quite clear. Um, I don't know how much I can say without giving away, but I think we can divulge that Anne's father has, has died. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, although it's... You know, I started to second guess that information later. And of course, death is like the greatest mystery of all. Maybe you could just describe, you know, ways in which you wanted to subvert and also meet the way a mystery normally unfolds and how, you know, I think the book really builds suspense on the fact that we don't, there's so much we don't know. I mean, I think that the way that I write is very, like, doesn't feel very driven by me. I mean, obviously, like, it's driven by me, but I feel, like, happiest when what I'm writing, like, surprises me, even on, like, a plot level. So I had many different structures and outlines for the book spanning, like, many, many different iterations of the plot. And I feel like this is just the one that like happened to me. There are a few things that feel like, I don't know, maybe not very interesting to describe to other people, but like, for example, when I was writing the part where, so he meets this woman who's like a guest lecturer who comes to his university to give a talk and he's kind of randomly invited to this dinner with her and then overhears that she's staying at this hotel that he's previously heard of Uh, in conjunction with his father. So I had written that whole part, like, for... I had written her for so long as just, like, a random woman who, like, that was, like, the whole function of her being in the plot. And then only, like, maybe, like, a year later did she, like, return as, like, the emissary of this shadowy group? And that was really surprising to me. Maybe that sounds 
like hard to believe, but I had had her in the plot for so long as just this like kind of like innocent random party. And also I feel like this is also kind of like a traditional detective story thing where there's like a mysterious woman who like the protagonist meets and they lead them to like a weird location. And that was kind of the function that she was serving for a long time. And then I was really surprised to find that in like later drafts, she returned as like a person with like a new, a secret identity. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about the hotel because so the hotel, when N is starting to investigate his father's death, the hotel is kind of the first clue he gets. And he goes to this hotel and there's a, the hotel keeps reappearing throughout the story. But one of the interesting things about it is that it's controversial because it has been built on the site of a genocide. So there's within the sort of more personal story of death in the book, there's also this kind of massive political story about mass genocide that happens at this mission, which is what the ho- the site that the hotel is built on. And I was wondering how those, if you thought of those two, they fit together, obviously, but I was wondering how you th- thought of that more personal um, story of death versus the kind of bigger historical story of the genocide that the, um, that the hotel represents. Yeah. So similarly to like the guest lecture thing, I had been writing the book for years with like just the personal story of like, and doing an investigation, like in previous drafts, he had these other things going on that he was doing. And it was like just his story for a long time. He worked at the university, but the mission part of it wasn't, did not exist. And then probably like two years into writing it, I audited this class in Detroit, like a at Wayne State, which is like the university in Detroit, like a genocide studies, modern genocide studies class. And so, I mean, just because I thought the class sounded interesting, not because I was like looking for like new avenues for my novel, but it just seemed like an interesting class to take. And the syllabus was like all the big genocides you've heard of, like the Holocaust or like Rwandan genocide or like Armenian genocide. But then also some that were like more controversial, like using the word genocide in relation is more contested. Like I think we did like communism in China. And then the one that was really super surprising to me growing up in California and hearing about the missions as like these like fun, big, buildings where like Native Americans farmed and like, uh, I don't know if it's just a California thing, but like when I was in elementary school, everyone did like a mission project where you would build like a mission on like a poster board and you'd be like, this is Mission San Jose. It's whatever, here it is. It was very like celebratory and historical and not at all like really nothing contested about it. So to like be learning about early American colonialism in the context of like it meeting the definition of genocide, like as outlined by the UN or whatever was really genuinely very shocking to me. Not even really intentionally, like it just kind of became part of the book. Is that helpful? Does that make, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. I think it also places, 
it's hard to talk about some parts of the book because you don't want to spoil it, but I, I think it puts the more personal death at the center of the story in a more political context too. I can't quite reveal what the context is or what the politics are, but I think it there becomes a clearer connection if you think about the death in the story within the historical context. I also think that the personal and historical deaths are connected by the fact that they both seem to be repressed and um, so much horror uh, is really about, you know, the, the repression of information, the repression of feeling that, that um, symptoms of repression overtake a body, you know, that, that you can't hide or avoid certain facts, certain histories, and then usually in personal case, certain feelings, which kind of brings us back to the fact that N is so reluctant to really look at, and, and actually, you know, and, and by that product, we don't totally know it's what's going on in, in his life or what's happened to him, but he seems so reluctant to look at it or divulge it. And it's interesting that you say, of, of course, which would make sense that growing up in California, you had no idea about the real history of the missions. Maybe this is too personal a question, but is there a, a personal genesis for any aspect of the story in terms of like something long seated that you needed to process or a secret in your family, anything like where you can see maybe where like some of this came to you or it's just all really like dreamed up. I definitely can't think of like (laughs) a secret in my family off the top of my head. Um, It doesn't even need to be a real personal thing in in some sense because right, because you could either connect it culturally to like a larger story that maybe wasn't clear to you as a child and has come back beyond the genocides or, I mean, is there a way that you maybe personally identify with that repression that is at the, at the heart of so much horror? No. I mean, the thing that does come to mind is I remember that at the time I was taking the class, I was like emailing with my mom about it. And I was like, today we talked about whether communism in China can be classified as a genocide. Oh, and she's Chinese, which is an important part of the story. (laughs) And she was like, what about the Japanese occupation of China? More people died than in like World War II. And I know, and like growing up, I've always known that that period of history, like, like the rape of Nanking, like that whole era was like very, felt very present to her and also felt like something, I think she also feels like it's something that people outside of China or people outside of her generation, like are not super aware of, or like maybe that people in the West think like Japan and China, like neighbors, like just, you know, have like having a great relationship, you know, but for her, that period of time, it like feels very painful and very like relevant. Does she discuss it? I mean, you know, not at length, but yes, she's definitely brought it up. And I think she brings it up in a way where she feels like she's bringing it up because people are not aware of it, you know? Well, one of the things that I think we should also talk about in the book is, as you mentioned earlier, is that, so he's investigating his father's death. And in this period, he meets this female guest lecturer who becomes this kind of shadowy guide to potentially other groups or a group that is contacting him through her. Um, He's also constantly interacting with this grad student, this woman, Christy? 
Christy. Christy. And he does, he does not like women. <laughs> he's, um, I mean, he's, aside from being a snob, he is a variety of other, other things you could say, but he's a misogynist, certainly. And I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, spending time with this character and what role you thought the misogyny sort of played in the investigation and in him as a, as a person. Well, I think, like, first of all, Kate, Day and I have this other friend, Eugene Kalyarenko, who's like a movie maker. And he told me like a really long time ago when I was reading one of his scripts, he was like, all these characters are me. Like every character in all of my movies, like they're all me in some way or the other, you know? And I feel like that's true for me too. Like, even though he's like, and is kind of like this loathsome person in many ways. Like, I also feel like he's like me. So it was not that hard to spend time with him, you know? Also, he evolved a lot, like over the years. Like when I first started writing the book, like 100 years ago, he was like a a single father. And the whole book was like about him and his daughter and how his daughter was like this really challenging daughter and all their like issues that they had. And I was trying to write him like that for such a long time. And then I just realized like after two years that not only was the daughter character like not working in any way, like whenever I tried to make her have any dialogue, it was like awful, but also he just seemed like such an emotionally stunted person. Like there was no way that he was like somebody's parent that like lived with their, you know, like it just was not a possibility for him to be the parent of someone or to have like a close interpersonal relationship like that, which is sad for him, you know, (laughs) but like, I just feel like it made a lot more sense for him to be this like super 100% alone person in terms of like his misogyny and racism and homophobia. I think like weirdly I've ended up writing a lot from this like male perspective that has those qualities, which is really unexpected for me. And like when I started writing, I imagined I would be writing a lot of like female protagonists. So it's been like very, like I'm not even that interested in like male protagonists. Like I don't like movies where there's like no female characters. Like I'm just, I feel like a very not that interested in men person, but like somehow this has happened to me. And I think like it's, I wouldn't say something so intentional or like political as like, this is the way I have chosen to explore the issues of misogyny, but it does feel like the most like authentic way from which I can understand or maybe just explore those tendencies, if that makes sense. I think that makes sense. And, and first of all, I want to say I'm glad that this guy is not a father because that would be traumatic for the, the, fictional, yeah. uh, the fictional child. But I also think just in terms of... Um, you know, returning again to repression, it's kind of like, it's amazing to be able to tap into this, just the live wire of prejudice and apathy and uh, and you know, misogyny and all, all of these things that this character and actually many real life men have and think and, and the way they operate. And so just to go straight into it, it must have some kind of power, you know, even though he is such a... Um, reserved character 
and, and so unemotional just to get right into that uh, way of thinking. I can see that being really generative. I'm, I'm curious if you, I'm curious if you're still like staying in that mode and, and writing again from a male perspective or. Yeah, I'm trying so hard to like move out of that vein with limited success. <laughs> like um, I started a second book this year. Oh no, last year, 2020 that to my great dismay ended up also being from like the perspective of a kind of like middle-aged, slightly more professionally accomplished psychiatrist. But it was like just so similar. It was very upsetting. Like 80 pages of this person who felt to me like very close to N. But the book is also supposed to have like a perspective that is like this is going to sound very possibly bad, but like an undead Mary Shelley. So, and they're kind of part of the same plot, but they're like different perspectives, obviously. The book was, I was just getting so much more of this other guy, not very much undead Mary Shelley. So, but I think, you know, I'm really trying to to move away from that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, maybe you don't have to, because it, it seems to work for you, so... <laughs> um, just for myself like just to spend, like Dave was saying like even though N is like you know an extension of myself and I do feel a lot of fondness for him and I feel bad for him that he's feeling so ineffectual and like you know also loses his mind I would prefer like if this is if this book is going to take me also 10 years I would just like to change it up like slightly you know yeah I understand well uh, I think we should probably end it there Thank you so much, Sarah, for, for coming on and talking with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Sarah. We've been speaking with Sarah Davis, author of The Scapegoat. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.